from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. Well, Amy DeLock is a senior policy analyst for the nonprofit Defenders of Wildlife. She joins us in the first part of the show to talk about wildlife and climate change. From shrinking habitats to changing weather patterns to rising ocean temperatures, we talk about the greatest threats they face and what possible actions we can take to help them. Then in the second part of the show, we turn our attention to the upcoming United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP, on climate change. From November 30th to December 12th, thousands of representatives from more than 190 countries around the world will gather in Dubai for the 28th COP to try to negotiate with each other over how to address the growing impacts of a warming world. Some countries have much more at stake than others, and one such country with a lot to lose when it comes to climate change is Bangladesh, a low-lying country that is already being impacted by sea level rise. Yet, like many poor countries, it has little bargaining power that it can use to influence climate negotiations. I'll speak with Dr. Navita Khan, an associate professor of anthropology at Johns Hopkins University and author of the new book, In Quest of a Shared Planet. It, the book focuses on the Bangladeshi delegation at the COP conferences to draw out what it means to be a small, poor, and dependent country within the negotiation process. Environmental awareness and education that's what this green earth is all about stay with me welcome to this green earth a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment i'm chris cherniak and our first guest this morning is amy delock she is a senior policy analyst for the nonprofit defenders of wildlife she's here to talk about um the relationships between wildlife and actually the impacts of climate change in a warming world on hundreds if not thousands of different forms of wildlife it's an interview that uh, claire and i did recently and here it is welcome amy to the show we're so happy to have you with us here we want to get started first with a little background about you and then we'll get into the mission behind defenders of wildlife so tell us about yourself Great. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. My role is a senior policy analyst for climate adaptation at Defenders of Wildlife. And my role is really to look at the way climate change is impacting species and habitats and what are the things that we can do about it. So we know that we are in a biodiversity crisis. We are at, we've got about a quarter of the species on earth are potentially at risk of extinction. And if we don't get a handle on climate change, that number is going to increase quite a bit. Climate change is one of the five top drivers of biodiversity loss and species imperilment globally and in the United States states, uh, along with habitat loss and fragmentation, over-exploitation, uh, pollution, and invasive species. And climate change is the most rapidly accelerating of those drivers of biodiversity loss. Uh, and it also interacts with a number of those other drivers. Uh, it can make uh, invasive species outbreaks worse by uh, you know, extending the growing season of a pest or a weed, that sort of thing. And so Defenders is really interested, uh, because we're in, interested in protecting biodiversity, we're interested in addressing that climate change driver, both through promoting renewable energy development in a responsible way, but also through ensuring that managers are accounting for climate change and its impacts on species and habitat. All right, so let's 
you alluded to some of this, but let's talk a little bit about how a species becomes, quote unquote, endangered. What goes into that? Sure. So uh, endangered is a technical uh, delineation of based on the Endangered Species Act, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, mm. was passed in 1973. Mm. And the Endangered Species Act is the world's foremost uh, conservation and, and a, a tremendously effective conservation law at protecting species and keeping them from extinction. So a species gets listed as endangered by the Fish and Wildlife Service or their marine counterpart, the National Marine Fisheries Service, if that species is considered to be at risk of extinction in the foreseeable future. And that's based on uh, five factors, which uh, overlap quite a bit with the, those five drivers of biodiversity loss that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Also include some things like uh, whether existing protective mechanisms are sufficient or not. So a species that is deemed at risk of extinction can be listed as endangered uh, under the Endangered Species Act. And that comes with some responsibilities to try to reduce those drivers and to help that species recover to the point where it no longer needs the protections of the Endangered Species Act. The ESA also provides a, a second listing status called threatened, which is for those species that are not quite in as dire shape as those that are endangered, but are at risk of becoming endangered in the foreseeable future. So the threatened species are, are the ones that are definitely imperiled, but not quite at, as imminently at risk of extinction as those that are endangered. Okay, so we'll, we'll get, get to uh, a little more information on threatened species, but there's, as of what, today, let's say, there's 459 species formally recognized here in the U.S. as endangered, and they uncover, Four, is that right? 450, well, there's there's a few more than that. There's actually, uh, the paper that we did covered endangered animals, uh, and it covered most of the U.S. endangered animals, with the exception of some that uh, have not been seen in the wild for a number of decades. Uh, since our paper came out, a few of those uh, were declared extinct. Uh, but so, yeah, so our species, our paper covers 459 animal species uh, that are listed as endangered uh, that have range in the United States. Right. So there, there's mammals, there's birds, fish, reptiles, amphibians, uh, arthropods, Correct. I'm assuming insects or so, and, and mollusks yes. have their own category. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, uh, so that, that's how many endangered species. Now, how many are and generally fall under the threatened category? The threatened category, we have in a separate paper looked at 172 additional animal species. Uh, those again are United States species um, and they that includes both terrestrial and marine. So there are a number of those species are in the waters surrounding the United States. Uh, and then uh, in yet another paper, we looked at endangered plants, and that was a number over uh, over 800. Wow. A separate, a whole separate category of, of endangered plants. Okay. Um, so along comes the Endangered Species Act. You said it was established back when? 1973, the ESA was signed. 1973. Okay. Um, wow. Not long after the EPA itself was established. Correct. Yes. So what was the, the general mission and goals of the Endangered Species Act? 
Right. So the Endangered Species Act uh, was aimed at protecting and recovering uh, those species that are imperiled in the United States. Um, you may recall at the time of the passage of the act, we were in danger of losing the bald eagle mm. because of DDT, our national bird. Uh, was declining precipitously in much of the U.S. because of um, the effects of the pesticide DDT. And so that in, uh, Endangered Species Act created the resources and created the mandate to help bring those species back uh, from the brink of extinction. The, the eagle has been a, a tremendous success of the Endangered Species Act, as have uh, species like the peregrine falcon, American alligator, um, and the, tr the Endangered Species Act has also been extremely successful in keeping species from going extinct. 98% uh, of the species that have ever been listed uh, under the ESA are still with us. We have not lost those species. And so uh, that's what the, the Endangered Species Act has really been great for, is keeping, uh, keeping us from having those species wink out and be lost forever. Now, because the ESA was... Um, signed in 1973, uh, we weren't thinking too much about climate change right. at that point. So right. the, the factors that uh, the law says to look at include uh, you know, modification, destruction of habitat, uh, diseases and pests, um, uh, uh, and then there's a sort of an a, a amorphous other category. And as, as the agencies have started to incorporate climate change more, many of them are looking either at the habitat impacts or they're looking at it in this other category. So even though climate change wasn't specifically written into the ESA, the agencies have um, definitely begun to look more closely at climate change as it is one of those really important drivers. And we can get into the specifics of what climate change impacts are on these species, but is it true, I saw a number given out that up to 60% of the world's species could potentially go extinct. Is that right? That, that is, uh, that's a sort of a worst case scenario. If we really don't get climate change under control at all, and we have, you know, a, a you know, like a five degree Celsius uh, climate change, we could see 60% of, of species going extinct. Um, we, we have a lot of hope that it will not get that bad. Um, policies are underway in many countries uh, through the Paris Agreement, uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States to really build renewable uh, energy and, and transition ourselves away from uh, fossil fuels. And hopefully we will be able to keep our, our total climate change at a much lower rate than that 60% figure. Uh, however, even with the, the amount of warming that we expect uh, will probably happen and, and, and hope to hold uh, climate change too, there's still some pretty dire impacts. Coral reefs are already being impacted around the world, even with the level of climate change that we're, we've seen to date, which mm -hmm. is about one degree Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and a number of other species will definitely be extremely imperiled uh, if e even with a, a smaller amount of climate change. Yeah, so walk us through some of these impacts. You just talked about, you know, obviously the ocean is mm -hmm. warming. Can you take us through some of the other impacts that these species are being affected by? Sure. Uh, so just the, the basic increase in temperature, of course, is one. Uh, that's... Uh, 
warmer temperatures, you lose things, you start to lose things like glaciers, you start to lose uh, Arctic sea ice. The polar bear is definitely imperiled because of that you know, direct relationship between temperature and ice. Uh, the other thing that climate change is really doing around the world is changing the patterns of rainfall. It's changing uh, where rainfall, where rain is falling, how much is falling at once. We're getting much more extreme precipitation events, and that means much more flooding. Uh, flooding is bad for a lot of aquatic species. Uh, mussels and things will get just swept uh, downstream and and can uh, you know die because of that. Uh, and then other other places. Um, don't see, you know, see extreme drought and don't see as much rainfall as they used to have. Uh, we, we almost uh, lost a, a population of the Sonoran pronghorn, which is um, the, a desert subspecies of the American pronghorn. Uh, in a, a large drought about 20, 25 years ago, uh, that species almost went extinct. They actually had to, to put water out uh, in order uh, to, you know, keep those, those species, those animals alive. Um, the pronghorn is doing somewhat better now, so that's good. But, you know, a lot of species are facing drought. Uh, as I mentioned, climate change can also increase the, uh, the effects of in, uh, invasive species. So we're seeing that across the West uh, with some of the, the bark beetles, uh, including mm -hmm. some, some beetles that are they're actually native species, but mm -hmm. they are being able to live much longer growing seasons, not dying off in, in the wintertime. Uh, and causing a lot more ecological havoc because of that. Uh, ticks are also expanding, mm. and um, you know we're seeing some some moose and things, which are not not an endangered species, but they are in some parts of the country they are imperiled because they have so many ticks attached mm. to them that they're actually becoming anemic. Um, and other species uh, have some some you know really interesting requirements about the timing of their their flowering and pollination and you know you need to make sure that an insect is available to pollinate the plant at the time the plant flowers and if that insect hasn't emerged yet uh but the time the plant is flowering that sort of phenologic mismatch can uh can threaten a species i'm gonna stop uh, you there just and, for a second can you sure. can you explain uh what phenology is Sure. Phenology is the timing of life cycle events. So that can be a plant flowering. It can be when an insect emerges uh, from its um, pupa or when it emerges from sort of hibernation. If it's a species that hibernates underground, uh, it's, uh, when when birds migrate, when um, when species begin to breed, all of those timing things are kind of covered under that category of phenology. And some timings of species life cycles are controlled by temperature. Others are controlled by daylight. And for instance, uh, the snowshoe hare uh, is a you know, small uh, rabbit species in, in the northern uh, US and Canada. And it changes color. Uh, it's white in the wintertime, and then it's a, a mottled brown color in the summertime in order to camouflage, to protect it from predation. Well, it's uh, that color change uh, of its molt is controlled by day length, and it has historically evolved so that that matched when there was and was not snow on the ground. And you're seeing now as the snow season uh, gets shorter due to uh, warming climate, you know, more more uh, fewer days that are snowy because the, the s spring is warmer and so is the autumn. Sometimes that that uh, 
rabbit has, the snowshoe hare has changed color into its white configuration for wintertime while it's still very green and brown. And so mm. it stands out like a sore thumb and, and is, uh, you know, becomes much more vulnerable to predation. We're speaking with Amy DeLock. She is a senior policy analyst, clim- climate adaptation uh, with the Defenders of Wildlife. And we're talking about endangered species, the Endangered Species Act, the role that climate change is playing on endangered species and and um, the fact that maybe perhaps the U.S. government agencies are not doing enough to consider climate change and the impacts of climate change on endangered species. So let's turn towards that, Amy. Um, mm-hmm. We have an understanding now of, of what the Endangered Species Act is all about, and, and it seems like it's it's over its 50 years, it, it's had its successes. I'm sure it's had its challenges too uh, and pushbacks. Um, but what is it that uh, the government government agencies uh, let's say the Department of Interior or so, are, are not doing enough, say, to address the role that climate change is having on endangered species. Right. So we looked first at U.S. endangered animals. Uh, and a few years later, we looked at the threatened animals and also at endangered plants. And we we, we first asked ourselves, okay, what aspects of these species' biology might make them more susceptible to the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. So we looked at whether they had temperature sensitivities or whether their habitat, like a polar bear, uh, depended on cold weather. We looked at um, whether they were susceptible to things like flooding or to to drying out of a a pond Mm -hmm. for an amphibian, that sort of thing. Uh, And we looked at a a number of other factors as well, uh, eight in total. And we found that virtually all of the species that we looked at had at least one aspect of their ecology and life history that made them sensitive to climate change. And then we looked at the documents that the Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Service have published about these uh, animals. So they publish, uh, in a lot of cases, they'll publish a recovery plan. Uh, Every five years, they're supposed to do a review of the status and of whether there are, uh, you know, new things that they're considering. Uh, whether there are new issues that have arisen, such as climate change. And we found, uh, initially, we found that about 65% of the uh, animals, endangered animals that we looked at, the agencies had at least started thinking about climate change in their their recovery action, and their recovery uh, as a threat to their recovery. Mm. But only in less than 20% of cases did they actually say, you know, these are the kinds of things that we're going to need to do about it. So for 35% of species, climate change wasn't mentioned at all in any of the documents that we looked at. Um, uh, And then for about 80% of the species, they really didn't have any plan to do anything about it. Um, And then we looked a little bit later at threatened species, uh, and we looked at the the, also the newer documents that have come out in the in the last five years regarding endangered species. And we found that the agencies are definitely getting better at thinking about whether climate change uh, is a threat to the species. So we're up in the 85 to 90% uh, of, of species ha- at least have climate change discussed as a threat. Um, but the actions are still only about 40% of species have any actions associated with uh, 
uh, they're, you know, adapting to climate change uh, in their recovery, critical habitat, et cetera. Um, and so that's a concern because, yeah. you know, it, we are we are very worried that the agencies are not, uh, you know, not planning to try to combat one of the biggest threats to wildlife. Now, a number of them have, and a number of them, uh, they're doing a really good job. Mm. So one example would be the bull trout. Uh, that's a threatened fish, a uh, trout species that's mm. found in the, in the Northwestern United States. Fish and Wildlife Service went into a designation of critical habitat for these species, this species saying, okay, what are the, what are the places that are the most important to protect in order to make sure that this species persists and recovers. And in that instance, they actually assessed all of the, the various streams that, that they might designate as critical habitat. And they chose to designate the ones that were higher elevation, colder temperatures, the ones that were likely to persist uh, with good conditions for the bull trout for a longer period of time. And so that's the kind of thing that we'd like to see them doing with more species, taking into account in an explicit way, where do we think this species has the best chance of persisting under changed conditions? What are the other things that we might need to do in order to make sure that the species, you know, you know, doesn't come into contact with the disease that's spreading northward because things are getting warmer? What are the, the different places that we might need to reestablish populations in order to make sure that one hurricane doesn't, uh, you know, take out the habitat for you know, the, the vast majority of the species or, you know, one wildfire. So we, we'd like to see Fish and Wildlife Service really, um, you know, designating the habitats that are potentially going to last the longest, but then also taking the steps to make sure that uh, species have more places where they occur on the landscape and a greater diversity of, of places where these uh, might be able to persist. Right. So... So climate change, like you talk about rising temperatures and and uh, changes in precipitation, either more, you know, less drought-like, or in some cases even more precipitation than normal. So precipitation varies in multiple directions. Loss of land and habitat, um, like you say, the, there's chemical effects associated with climate change, mm -hmm. like carbon dioxide and carbonic acid, and, and lowering pHs and around in around coral reefs. All of those things are force multipliers upon an already uh, species, let's say, that's endangered. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's a it's a daunting obvious, task. It is a daunting task. Okay. <laughs> but we, you know, we think it we, it can be done, and and we think that it needs to be done. Uh, you know, we we have we have a tremendous, I think, responsibility to protect biodiversity, to protect our endangered species. Um, you know, biodiversity and ecosystems function in ways that we don't even fully understand, and they provide us with services that we don't necessarily appreciate. And if you start dropping pieces uh, of your jigsaw puzzle, if you start losing species, you can have you know collapses that you would really wish in a retrospect that you had prevented. And so that's uh, you know, one of the reasons that we would like to make sure that we keep all of these species on the landscape and in the ocean. Uh, j just one more minute or so in uh, uh, changing political climates too, so to speak. Uh, is the Endangered Species Act itself under threat? 
That is always uh, definitely a concern and protecting and, and defending the Endangered Species Act is definitely a priority of defenders. Um, but, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that irrespective of, of party among Americans in general, the Endangered Species Act uh, enjoys tremendous support. Biodiversity and the environment enjoy tremendous support. And so if politicians were really responding to what people care about and are interested in, there wouldn't be a political threat because overwhelmingly Americans support the Endangered Species Act. We've seen that in poll after poll in all parts of the country and across the political spectrum. Well, that's encouraging. I guess one thing, though, uh, different administrations can do is is just underfunded or reduce funding as a, as a way of like, yeah, well, the act is still there, but we're just going to give you less money this year. Something along those yeah, lines. That's, yeah, that that certainly does happen. Uh, and you know, there are there are species that have never gotten a recovery plan because they simply haven't had the funding to do it. Uh, there are you know there are certainly funding challenges. Uh, a, a some, some species get very, very little funding, some get quite a bit. Uh, and so we would like to see more funding and also really increasing the funding for those species that are getting uh, very little attention. Amy Delac, she is the Senior Policy Analyst of Climate Adaptation with the Defenders of Wildlife. Amy, where can people go to learn more about your papers, uh, papers and the work you do and the Defenders of Wildlife in general? Defenders.org is the gateway to all uh, Defenders information. And uh, if you just search on climate change, you can find our work there. Perfect. Amy, thanks again so much for joining us this morning on this screen earth. Yes. Thank you, Amy. And for the work that you're doing, we appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak, and joining me for the second part of the show is Dr. Navita Khan. She's an associate professor of anthropology at Johns Hopkins University and author of the new book, In Quest of a Shared Planet. It's a book that focuses on the Bangladeshi delegation at the uh, United Nations uh, COP conferences. And uh, we're going to talk about COP and the book, of course, but Dr. Khan... Thank you so much for joining me this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, let's, let's get some background uh, first on, let's say, COP, the United Nations Conferences, Conference of the Parties on Climate Change. What is it? What is its history? Um, conference of parties is not a conference of regular people. It's a conference of uh, countries that have signed an accord and therefore are party to the accord. And the accord in particular that brings together this conference of parties is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was drafted and adopted in 1992 in Rio. Um, so since that time, the parties to this convention have been meeting every year to try and negotiate uh, a global climate policy, uh, something that all countries to the world agree to in terms of how to fight climate change and all its many different impacts. 
and uh, and you know the negotiations have been ongoing since 1992 and first uh, produced the Kyoto Protocol uh, which uh, ultimately did not go oh we um we she just froze all right dropped off we'll uh, get Dr. Khan back in a in a minute but we're talking to her about uh, the United Nations Conference of Parties or COP on climate change and uh, in in particular uh, Dr. Khan has written a, a new book called In Quest of a Shared Planet which focuses on one country's delegation I to the conferences. Ah, Dr. Khan you dropped off I'm sorry. Hello? Yes, Dr. Khan we have you back. I live in the first world. I have first world amenities, and I don't know why this keeps happening. Ah, all right. Well, you um, you froze, or we lost you as you were describing kind of the history of conference of parties, uh, the the Kyoto Protocol, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, let's kind of wrap that up. I, I'm assuming that one of the more successful ones, let's say, was in Paris. So the Paris uh, meeting was by far the most uh, successful. All the countries came together to adopt and uh, ratify that uh, agreement. And, and since then, we've been kind of in its shadow. Right, in its shadow. What, what briefly are some of the ch reasons behind that? What are the, the ongoing challenges? Uh, the ongoing challenges has been that even though everybody agreed to the Paris Agreement, it wasn't as if they actually agreed to how it was going to be implemented and whether, you know, developed countries were going to have their own pathways. Developing countries, large ones such as India, China, were going to join that pathway and when, whether smaller countries such as uh, small island nations and least developed countries, African nations, whether they should also have some goals or not, or whether flexibilities should be extended to them so they're carved out of the actual uh, mitigation efforts. So all of these details had yet to be worked out when the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. Okay, so now let's kind of turn to your book entitled In Quest of a Shared Planet, which focuses on a, a one particular country that is having particular challenges with respect to climate change, and that's Bangladesh. First, give us a little background on Bangladesh, population, maybe environmental setting, and why it's so vulnerable to climate change. So the country is small. It's uh, The territory is approximately the size of the state of Wisconsin. It has uh, about 120 million people living on that territory, so it's quite densely populated. It has, in a, such a small uh, delta country, it has quite a wide range of topography. So you have uh, hills uh, in the northern end, then you have a very riverine landscape of many rivers that crisscross and that lead into the bay, the Bay of Bengal. And that bay, which is part of the Indian Ocean, is quite threatening to the country uh, insofar as, as uh, ocean level, water levels rise, 
you know, there's fear of inundation, but the sorts of concerns that are already uh, in the forefront is the fact that salinization from the ocean waters is entering into the mm. soil and into the river pathways. And uh, so the country is, you know, both uh, vulnerable along its coast, but also vulnerable along its riverine areas as the saline water comes up uh, the pathways there. Um, so yeah, that's to just give you a sense of the of the topography and the people and some of the major concerns. Right. Climate uh, yeah, climate change always presents its expresses itself in what I like to think of in physical, chemical, and biological terms. Right. You mentioned the physical, literally the rise of sea level rise, which is then creating a chemical change to the estuaries, more salt water, which uh, can potentially contaminates water supplies. But then there's biological changes that go along with that. Uh, mangroves may be impacted. Um, wildlife are impacted. Sea life are impacted. Is that also is, uh, expressing itself in Bangladesh? Oh, certainly. I mean, the mangroves are a very important part right. of the ecology of Bangladesh in terms of keeping, uh, you know, its uh, its coastal areas uh, safe. And so the inundation of mangroves above a particular level will mean that a certain loss of regenerative capacities of these of these very interesting ecologies. But even besides that, the other sorts of concerns are having to do with, uh, you know, the impact of salt water on fish fishing mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and you know the the types of fishes that usually people in Bangladesh rely upon for food uh, in the riverine areas and even uh, further up uh, north with the with the glacier melt and the water floods that are going to be coming through uh, what's interesting about those floods is that they don't carry generally as much sedimentation as is needed to replenish a deltaic landscape and so and also there are you know dams being built uh, further up north either by china or by india that further take away that kind of sedimentation from mm. the landscape and so in an interesting way the ocean is coming in but the landscape is not being repleted so as to be able to better resist it and so that will have a very uh, interesting impact on you know the soil quality and uh, the regenerative capacities of agriculture as well and that's interesting you mentioned those dams being built because uh because let's say india is building dams upstream to produce i would think produce hydroelectric power which would you know india would argue is reducing their uh reliance on fossil fuels so there's there's this double-edged sword that's going on like one country's efforts to reduce uh, fossil fuel consumption may have a downstream, literally, in this case, downstream mm -hmm. impact on another country. I mean, Bangladesh is caught in a lot of different uh, uh, interesting, uh, I would say, capital flows mm. in terms of the sort of uh, offsetting of uh, climate uh, impacts. So, for example, China, to offset its uh, coal production, has uh, started coal production in Bangladesh. So ah. it's offsetted its coal production. Uh, India, as you rightly point out, is 
is, you know, building dams in order to reduce its fossil fuel dependence, but those hydroelectric uh, producing dams are going to have this impact, negative impact on Bangladesh down the road. And so in an interesting way, Bangladesh is both feeling the impacts of climate change, but also feeling the impacts of actions to mitigate against climate change. So it is in a very interesting double bind as it were. Okay, so Bangladesh puts together a, 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 a representatives. They go to COP, COP20. They've been going to COP for years, I assume. Generally, what is their goals and objectives? So, you know, Bangladesh being a small and poor country uh, is usually edged out of any meaningful conversation, say, in other platforms, for instance, you know, having to do with trade or loans or having to do with, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, market, uh, market relations and so on. So what we have is in this instance, a space where Bangladesh being poor and uh, put upon uh, actually plays to its advantage because it occupies a certain kind of moral high ground mm -hmm. to uh, point to the fact that it doesn't contribute that much to global climate emissions. Mm -hmm and yet it's impacting a larger uh, impacts, uh, you know, it's more impacted mm -hmm. by climate change. And, um, and so it's listened to in this space. And uh, of, of course, in, in such a space, it's not possible to speak as a single country. So they associate and affiliate with other countries to form blocks. Uh, one of the historical blocks has been G77 and China, but Bangladesh is, uh, for, is part of a smaller block within that framing block, which is LDCs, least developed countries. Mm -hmm. And as part of that block, they've been able to have a pretty strong moral voice criticizing uh, industrialized countries for not uh, doing more also spurring developing countries within g77 china such as india brazil uh, uh, china to do more and so what it tries to do in this space is to uh, sound that moral uh, uh, um, uh, in that moral voice sound that alarm about climate change uh, affiliate with other small countries that are similarly beleaguered so as to up the up the issues attention to issues such as loss and damage mm -hmm. they affiliated with uh, small uh, uh, small island nations in order to make loss and damage uh, a far more important issue than it had been in previous decades so this is the way in which it negotiates that space uh, by acting as a spur and a prod I'm speaking with Dr. Navita Khan. She's an associate professor of anthropology at Johns Hopkins University and author of the new book, In Quest of a Shared Planet. The book focuses on the Bangladeshi delegation at the UN COP conferences uh, and, try, and, draw, and draws out, as Dr. Khan was alluding to, what it means to be a small, poor, and dependent country within negotiation processes. When you say that they're kind of blocked out of of conversations or so is that almost in a in a literal sense they're just like not invited to certain meetings or can't get into certain meetings or just can't get heard 
Um, I think they, they go to everything because, you know, all of the international processes that involve uh, countries of the world, I think there is quite a lot of attention to procedure and doing the right thing. Mm. And so in that sense, they're obviously invited to, for example, you know, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals kinds of uh, conferences and so on. But I think that in those sorts of spaces, the people who give money for development projects or the people who give make loans, such as the World Bank and so on, they get to call the shots a lot more, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whereas in a space that is created by the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, you know, small countries aren't edged out simply because they don't have that kind of financial or historical or political weight. They are actually given slightly more importance because they come bearing stories of uh, what's happening in the front lines of the fight against climate change. It's almost like they fit a certain kind of uh, victim slash hero uh, slot. Mm. And so, you know, this is how they come to uh, occupy that uh, space that I was telling you about of having a moral voice and of uh, prodding and spurring countries. Right. Now, now you mentioned money. Um, I'm just quickly thinking there's a number of ways to address climate change. Either we, you know, through, through mitigation, uh, uh, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels and coal, oil, natural gas uh, to produce energy in one form or another. We uh, increase our use of renewables uh, to produce electricity, let's say. Uh, and then there's, there's building resiliency, uh, creating adaptation or producing some form of adaptation, and that costs money. So there have been cops in the past that attempted to, I say, raise funds for these um, island nations or small developing countries. Yes, so um, finance has always been a very large part of the negotiations from the get-go. Um, one of the hopes of uh, countries from the global south going into this process in 1992 was to really think if this was the means by which finally a kind of long overdue resource redistribution was going to happen in the aftermath of, say, you know, decades of uh, capitalism, colonialism, resource extraction, and so on. And very quickly it became evident that, you know, uh, industrialized countries of the world were not going to fall in line with just handing out uh, big um, wards of, uh, of cash uh, mm -hmm. in order to balance out their debt because they had, uh, you know, in some ways contributed to the problem, historically to the problem of climate change uh, so much. But they were... Uh, they were in agreement that they needed to start first, which is why we've seen mitigation efforts in terms of efficiencies, energies, etc. Mm -hmm. But that they were also going to uh, provide pots of money to encourage uh, smaller countries, developing countries, least developed countries to come along to make their economies more sustainable or to build capacity or to, um, you know, there should be uh, more technology transfer from the industrialized economies to these growing economies and so on. Um, 
But, you know, like everything else in the COPs, it all is open for negotiation and is still being hammered out room by room, issue by issue. And uh, while capacity building has been a very successful in the room that is for technology transfers, there's a lot more uh, heated discussions because industrialized countries with copyright issues, etc., cetera, uh, don't necessarily want to be able to just uh, transfer over that technologies to poorer countries hmm. and the the most contentious of these would be the room that is you know to discuss finance long-term financing uh, to help countries which are already undergoing tremendous losses and so you know what would look like adaptation and in what form the money should be given is something that is still very um, very intensely discussed meanwhile you know the industrialized countries do uh, uh, feed into small pots of funding, which enable small-scale development and adaptation projects. And those are ongoing under the rubric of the UNFCCC, but the large scale funds that will be needing that will be needed as, for example, countries lose territory and even perhaps lose sovereignty and require the resettlement of entire populations. Those sorts of issues and the monies for that, I feel, are yet very contentious and not yet openly discussed. Okay, uh, a few more minutes. How has Bangladesh benefited? Uh, from say receiving any of these funds and 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 establishing any types of programs or or um, technologies to benefit or to address uh, climate change. Well, you know, Bangladesh is an interesting country because you know it was considered uh, in some ways a lost cause, a basket case by a previous American president huh. because it had so many problems in terms of population rise, food shortage, right. floods, etc. But it is considered a successful country in turning its uh, economic fortunes around and is actually, interestingly, one of the most stable economies in the region when you compare to, for instance, uh, close by Pakistan or Sri Lanka. So Bangladesh, it does like to tout it itself as a success story. And so within that context, they came to these negotiations in a very different posture than they have to previous international uh, meetings. In those previous meetings, they felt that they went out with their hat in their hand. Whereas here, they felt that they went out um, to say that, you know, we don't need your money. We need you to just act. We need you to mitigate and mitigate now. We need you to commit to the long-term finance goal. Uh, and so Bangladesh feels like this isn't a place where they go looking for development funds, etc. If anything, they go here to create bilateral relations with uh, industrialized countries uh, so as to, you know, be equal trading partners and so on. But, you know, they I'll play up the the fact uh, of the the fact that they are very negatively impacted by climate change and will be more so in order to um, keep industrialized countries and increasingly developing countries focused on uh, the importance of mitigation for for countries like Bangladesh. Okay, uh, last minute or so, um, and of course I'll ask a question that 
you know take five minutes to answer. But are are the is the Bangladesh as the Bangladeshi representatives are they are they hopeful going for COP twenty eight? Um, they are actually okay. uh, the Bangladeshi negotiators. You know they are stalwarts. I mean, in the sense that they've been going to this process from the beginning and have deep institutional history and so on. And so this time around, what they're thinking is that maybe the uh, the one in which we see two uh, major actions. One in terms of uh, fossil fuel phase out. The language still is hovering around phase down but they would like to see fossil fuel phase out and that would be very much in line with their interest in having the more powerful countries of the world mitigate and along another line because of the support that they have extended to the issue of loss and damage they're hoping to uh, they're hoping to uh, see some progress in terms of a proper mechanism by which uh, funds are collected and distributed through this mechanism to uh, uh, affected countries of the world and you know again the money that are going to accrue with through this process is never going to be as large as the actual damage in the real world. A anything that this process is trying to do is to create templates mm. for, go for good uh, principles and governance for how other countries and their bilateral relations, cities, you know, uh, municipalities, etc., can uh, can mimic and replicate these uh, principles and. Um, practices. So really, right. they're, again, they're not going in so much for the money, but to see that a proper mechanism by which people come to an agreement uh, as to how countries that are affected, populations that are affected, are going to be treated in the future. Well, I always like to end things on a hopeful note, and we'll have to end it there. Thank you for that measure of hope. Uh, Dr. Navita Khan, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University and author of the new book, in quest of a shared planet. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on this green earth. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation and I apologize for all the technical difficulties. Oh, sure, not your fault. It's a team effort. Thanks, Dr. Khan. <laughs>